every single day. People want to connect with someone who... Self-expression is life. It is the challenge. It's a challenge of life. You can't get mad at other people for not seeing your vision. It was all about a grind. Like, like I said, I was selling CDs, DDs, and clothes out the trunk of my Whatever car. Whatever it takes. This is for the people. Don't forget that. What's up, Lug Life family? This is Zach. We are on the top of Junk Luggers headquarters in Astoria, New York. Episode 18, Solomon Troy, CEO, founder, 16 handles. Thank you so much for coming today. And, um, you know, why don't you just first start off by just telling everyone what 16 handles is and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me here on this wonderful summer rooftop day. Uh, different type of a rooftop experience in NYC. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but, you know, my 16 handles journey started just over 14 years ago. Came out to New York City in the beginning of 08. So not exactly the best time to, to come out and try to start a business. But hey, you know what? As an entrepreneur, um, the glass is always half full and you deal with the punches you know, as, as they come. And so I didn't know that we were headed into you know, a subprime mortgage crisis. I didn't know that we were going to end up into, into double digit unemployment. Uh, actually, it looks a lot more like today than it does uh, than any other year in the last 14 years. But uh, really, the desire came because I've been in hospitality all my life. My parents owned an independent um, hamburger shop back in the day when I was a kid. I remember, you know, going to South Central LA with them sometimes. Uh, that's where it was. And seeing them in action there to then my father, once he had some success, ended up uh, joining a franchise and more on that in terms of, you know, the business model for 16 Handles. Um, but ultimately, all this led to me giving the opportunity to start my own brand. And it's something that I've always wanted to do. So uh, came out here in 08. 16 Handles is New York City's first self-serve frozen yogurt shop. Amazing. And uh, started that in Manhattan's East Village and opened in July of 2008. And uh, since then, we've organically grown by way of franchising. So I've actually never taken on any outside capital other than what the family put in for me to open up that first store in East Village. Wow. And that, in the last 14 years, probably is the most incredible part of the entire journey was just, we're still on a bootstrap journey. It's a startup uh, that just is 14 years in the making. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we've been able to grow into multiple states. Um, I would think that in uh, New York City and in the tri-state, we're kind of like a beloved name now. We have generational employees. I have people who told me that they used to come when they were NYU students and now have kids of their own who are coming. And so it's really great to see that. That's exactly what I wanted to build was a brand that could have a legacy beyond just that first store or even just beyond what I created and just something that people will cherish and love. And that's what 16 Handles is about. It's about you know incorporating this self-serve self experience to allow people to come. Um, identify with whatever it is they want identify with at the time. We celebrate all different types of dietary celebrations and I think we do it in a way that's really fun, engaging, and experiential. And uh, we've had a lot of success in being able to do that, really with the start of the Froyo wave in, like I said, early 2008, to now being more a, an all-inclusive soft serve shop where the ideas of personalization, customization, and um, are, you know, really transcend through all things soft serve, whether they be ice cream, Froyo, sorbet, plant-based, uh, kind of all of the above. And so that's, that's what 16 Handles is. Yeah, I mean, that's how I feel like before I even met you at EO, that's how I started the 16 Handles journey, right? My wife, she's dairy-free, gluten-free, and 16 Handles is just so inclusive to all different types of dietary restrictions, uh, fat-free, gluten-free. I know you're keto, right? 
I, I was keto for a year. Yeah. So, so even, even, yeah. Yeah. So you, it's like, it's, that's the amazing part. Like you don't have to give up the sweets and you can still have all different types of options for all these different types of dietary restrictions. So I think that's amazing. And it seems like, so your parents were first generation immigrants to America. It seems like your whole upbringing has been about hard work and grinding. Is that correct? Yeah, look, I saw it firsthand as a young child. Um, I have two younger sisters, five and 10 years younger than me, and we've all seen it. You know, my parents, this idea of working, you know, a nine to five in an office job, just something that was completely foreign, yeah. uh, you know, pun intended. And my parents came in, you know, working seven days a week, you know, was typical latchkey kid growing up. And um, I thought that that was normal. And, you know, when they provided me an opportunity to then, you know, be able to get a good education and understand kind of how things work, you know, here in this country. Uh, you know, the, the lessons that they left and the indelible marks of hard work and persevering and providing for not just yourself, but, you know, your, your family and your eventual legacy is something that never, never escaped me and still today drives me. And now that I have my own, you know, children, something that I want to impart with them. That being said, I didn't want to break my back, you know, 24 seven forever. And so I do think that, again, the combination of the, the strong work ethics that I saw them do never complaining. And again, working in food service, and specifically when my father was working in the buffet business, when he became a franchisee, that's a 365 day a year business. Um, that was one of the selling points of the buffet franchise, yep. never closed. And so for us and myself growing up specifically in high school, and I remember in college, the holidays that families would get together or whatnot were, 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 the, were the busiest days. And so that's when we went to work. And again, did it without complaining because that's what was normal. The norm was that's when we go, that's when we go make money. And why we do it though is again, I think in looking back and I'm able to appreciate this now, like I said, as a parent is this paved the way for me to be able to not just have it easier in terms of, so I don't have to work those days, but to be able to pursue it in a different manner. And I think, being able to incorporate, again, some of the hard work ethics, the street smart, so to speak, along with the business principles and the things I learned in school and then working in the real, uh, real workforce, that combination led to this journey that culminated in New York City in 2008. And I think that's something that sometimes people miss. You know, they're like, oh, you were the first ones to introduce self-serve, soft-serve, and, 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 and that's why you got lucky. And yes, part of it is I was at the right place at the right time, but there was a lot of preparation there. And there was a lot of years of grinding at the restaurant level. There was years of working with the startup hospitality group where I opened up a, a Japanese restaurant um, that still happens to be in existence today. But again, we didn't know what the future of that was gonna be. I helped open up uh, gelato franchises throughout Southern California. And so all of these experiences then led and culminated in New York City. It wasn't just, hey, was at the right place at the right time and got lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that a lot of times that, that hard work and that perseverance and just grinding gets overlooked. Um, but without that, again, I mean, I started going into, you know, the, the Great Recession. And now in, in what, what, what are they calling this now? The, the pandemic. The pandemic and like, you know, um, you know, with a lot of job changes, uncertainty. To me, this idea of like, how are you able to navigate through these uncertainties come from, well, that was my whole life. Right. My whole life was work really hard, you know, stay committed to what the plan is. And if you do that at some point, you know, you'll, you'll catch your break. Right. Course, and, yeah. and I think that that's really important is to not give up. Cause there was plenty of moments where people, you know, I think looking from outside would have been like, you probably should have not done that, or you probably should have tapped out or done something else. Um, and that's not to say that along the way that we didn't change course and, and pivot. I think that's absolutely necessary. 
you know, I'll give an example now is, um, so several years ago, you know, as you had mentioned and took notice, I was very into the ketogenic diet and just understanding that when people choose to partake in certain diets or dietary lifestyles, it's a choice. Right. And sometimes it's not a choice when it's a dietary restriction or an allergen. But at the end of the day, the business that I'm in, which is really about celebrating life, celebrating dessert, needs to be and should be, in my opinion, something that... Uh, sustainable. Sustainable and, sh and should be stress-free. And so I started attending a lot of these different food shows, um, even outside of just restaurant trade shows. And really it was to understand the consumer, the consumer mindset, and really all the dietary celebrations that go in between. Just can't compete with the, with the scenery here, even though it's beautiful. Um, but with that, you know, I learned about the ketogenic diet, which I was, you know, very, uh, you know, heavily into for, for a good year. And then saw a lot of the different uh, alternative proteins, um, the plant-based movement really starting to take off. And so I just became a student of that, of just learning consumer behavior around how food is impacting how people consume, which is something that uh, no matter what, technology will never replace. It can accelerate how quickly you can get your food, how you can trace your food. But... We're not going to be able to plug ourselves into a USB port and, and be fed, right? Um, and so that's, that's really what opened up the curiosity to understanding, hey, these things that are driving people's purchasing behavior, whether it's for themselves, for their families, at home, um, I want to be in that ecosystem. And that then opened my eyes to how do I do that for 16 Handles as a platform that I've built? Because here I have these outlets throughout the East Coast and sure, people want to come in and celebrate dessert, but how do I go beyond that? And it was really about, well, let's lean into something that will always be important, which is their dietary choice at that moment, which can change from Monday afternoon to Friday night and anything in between. And that's where I think we saw a lot of success in terms of kind of shifting our priorities to instead of just frozen yogurt your way to, hey, we're about flaunting your flavor, letting people express themselves in this cup or in the cone and just enjoy it. And once you can have that positive emotional connection, that's what I believe brand is. It's the one that leaves that lasting positive emotional connection. What you then sell becomes secondary. It's not just about the product in and of itself, but really about the products and the services you're providing. What does that represent? How does that make them feel? And if you do something really good, they're going to want to keep coming back for that. And so I think that from a branding perspective, that's what's been the most fun part of this journey is, is building brand. It's what I set out to do. And... You know, New York, I think, is very unforgiving in the sense that if you don't have a good retail or service concept, they'll let you know real quick. Yeah. So maybe that's a good thing. Um, but if it does work, you know, you're definitely rewarded for it. And, and so we've been fortunate to be rewarded where just, uh, again, that, that brand loyalty that we've experienced over the years has allowed us to stay in existence 14 years strong now. And, and we're still going and opening up into new markets. That's so amazing. And I know when I was researching and just downloading on who you are, one thing that stood out to me is that when you went to USC, it, I think it was after you graduated, you started working at Enterprise and you worked your way up to assistant manager, correct? What, how did that play a role in learning not only what a large corporation does to be successful, but how did that play a part into who you are today? Enterprise has definitely shaped how I view hospitality, retail management, as well as branding. Um, specifically, the thing that I learned is that you can sell a commoditized product. There's nothing more commoditized than a rental car. Yeah. It's the same exact Toyota Camry that's coming off the line yeah. that goes to Hertz, Budget, all, all the other rental car companies. The thing that made Enterprise special was two things. One, 
how they recruited, mm. right? So ultimately, what's in between the customer and that car? It's going to be the person that rents them the car. So that people they invested heavily into. And then secondly, it was their commitment to service and making sure that that guest was completely satisfied. And when you have a completely satisfied guest, as you and I both know, you can have a lifelong customer. That's brand loyalty. And so when I thought about that, in, in, in hindsight and in retrospect, I'm like, that's really the brand journey of all brands. Yeah. And Enterprise taught me that at the time. I may not have understood it completely, but they really taught me the fundamentals of look, I mean, even in terms of getting promoted, A, I had to overcome objection. They promote you because you're able to thoughtfully or tactically sell insurance to people who already have car insurance, yep. right? Um, and then two, make sure that they leave completely satisfied and something could happen with the car, something could happen with the rental experience, but empowering every single employee to completely satisfy the guest is something that they entrusted and made sure that was in the brand's DNA. So they stood behind complete guest satisfaction. And so I think those two things really then transcended into when my father actually poached me from enterprise. Wow. I mean, that's really how I transitioned from there into the restaurant was he saw me winning a lot of the sales awards um, and they'd send me to Hawaii and Catalina Island. And just like, hey, you're winning all these awards. Can you come help me with my restaurant in San Diego? He was a multi-unit franchisee at the time and his San Diego restaurant was, you know, was, was starting to struggle. And so I said, yeah, sure, I'll come, I'll, I'll come help you. And really what I implemented was exactly that was let's change how people perceive us in terms of service. Cause that's really what was lacking. It wasn't the product. Our food was great. Yeah. Um, and that, that change was an internal change. Cause I had to change the mindset of the staff, especially the front of house staff who were jaded because again, they weren't getting the tips that they're set in their ways. Yeah. And they, and, and, and they didn't want to change, but when I kind of in, showed them, Hey, if we do these things to really change the guest perception, everyone becomes happier. We all make more money. You get more shifts. Yep. Guests keep coming back. It's a, it's a cycle. It only works when it works and when yeah. it's broken, it doesn't work. And so, you know, be, being able to, to see that and then turn it into a well-oiled machine until, until we sold it, um, was definitely kind of the next stage in my journey of hospitality and building brand, right? And so in two instances with Enterprise One, I got to learn how a very highly functioning brand works. The second one was helping my father who was a franchisee of a brand that existed and turning around something that used to work, didn't, and now it works again. And then the third stage was really, um, I got a chance to join a startup hospitality group and we got to start our own um, you know, restaurant concepts. But then this is something that didn't work and this is also another um, Another way of looking at it is the CEO of the company bought the rights to a Texas-based gelato franchise. Mm. And that's now the segue into frozen dessert. And he was like, you're now the head of franchise development. Figure this out. And this was in 2005, 2006. And just when Pinkberry was taken off in L.A. and Froyo was like, you know, shooting through the roof again. And, um, and, he, and, and I had to figure this out. And I, I was thinking like when we were doing what we call discovery days where we'd have potential franchisees, you know, that would show up and even before that info sessions. And they're like, but what about frozen yogurt? What about Pinkberry? What about these other Froyo brands that are really taken off that people want? And I had to keep telling them the answers. Well, this is a gelato franchise you're buying into. We don't do Froyo. We don't do frozen yogurt. And you say that enough times and you realize I'm like, wait, I'm kind of playing for the wrong team here. Like I want to sell the thing that people want. I don't want to sell them what they don't want. And so um, that's when I decided, hey, why don't I build my own brand around frozen yogurt, something that's very popular. And the way that I went about that was not just, hey, let's move to New York and do this. My, uh, a family friend of ours, still today, Mr. and Mrs. Song, shout out if you uh, listen to this podcast or shout someone shares this with Mrs. you. Song. But they still run today 
a company called America's Cup Yogurt that they bought in 1990 and still operate today, you know, as a mom and pop owner. And they were friends with my parents. My mom introduced me to them. And when, when I saw that business model, I was like, this is great. I mean, people love the self-serve. People love customization. I knew that from the buffet business, but what I loved about this model was it's pay by weight. You know, it's very little waste. And, and so, and low labor. And, and all the things that, again, coming from a very labor-intensive, low-margin big business. I liked everything about this. And I thought this is very scalable, definitely much more scalable than the gelato franchise I was trying to sell. And so I decided to barter myself. Right. And so again, this is another part of it is I sacrificed any potential earnings I could have had for three months to do what, to go in and learn the business from someone who had been doing it at that time. This was in 07 for 17 years, right. They'd been doing this day in, day out. No one knows that business better than them. I'm like, that's who I want to learn from. I want to learn from the best. And so in, in, in doing that, that's when I was able to, in my mind, put together my business plan and my parents and my aunt and uncle took notice of that. And they were like, hey, if you're serious about this and you want to build your own brand off of this type of a model, we'll be your investors. And that was the one and only time I ever took an investment was to start 16 Handles. And even with that, in terms of going from Southern California to New York City, my aunt, who was one of the investors, lives in Bergen County, New Jersey. And she was trying to tell me, come do this in New Jersey. And look, no offense to New Jersey, but I said, but if I'm leaving LA and I'm coming out here and I got one shot to build a brand, let's cross that bridge and let's go to New York City. And landed in East Village where we had at the time nine direct competitors within a three block radius. Again, chose that by intention, that was by design because I didn't know New York City. But I did think, hey, if I can outmaneuver and be number one amongst this mix of everybody, then New Yorkers will start to recognize that this is the best one. And that's what I came to do. I'm like, let's see if I can build the best one. It's amazing. I think ultimately that's why you see a lot of different, the same type of industries next to each other, right? Because not only does that, do people start to visualize that this is the area for that product or service, but at the same time, it pushes each business to become better, right? So by you being near the other Froyo uh restaurants, you're ultimately telling yourself you have to be the best of the best to succeed. And I'm sure a lot of your success has come from that. Two things that stand out to me. One, um, your father was traveling to San Diego. Where did you guys live? Um, So at the time we were living in Orange County. And so he was commuting probably like an hour and a half each way. And thinking about now, right, where people are literally leaving their job because they don't even want to leave their apartment or house. And your father was commuting three hours a day. It just shows you, right, like how dedicated he was to the craft. And I know we were talking about earlier just how many people want to be entrepreneurs, but really what it takes to be successful. Like, I'm sure your father woke up in an ungodly hour and got home at an ungodly hour, right? And you said he never complained, right? So when you think about that, when you think about how that shaped you into who you are as an entrepreneur, like what is what comes up? Yeah, you know, that type of work ethic, I think, is very, well, first of all, it's, it's, it's absent today. Yep. And look, it's a different generation. I get that. Um, you know, he didn't have, when he was doing this, he didn't have the iPhone. He didn't have, what, what I will say is this, though, is that I think that commitment to why he was doing what he did, I think, was what drove him, yeah. um, which was for family and for the advancement of myself and my sisters. Um, I think also at the time, because of a lack of technology, he had to make it up with just physical brute force of, I have to show up, I have to do it this way. Um, so, you know, there, there's some things that I think today 
aren't necessarily um, bad things as to how you can be more efficient and effective at what you do. That being said, I do think that that level of commitment, you know, whether you're, you know, remote work or whatever, that level of commitment, I think, is what separates those who end up succeeding ultimately and those who maybe will look back and be like, well, what if I tried a little bit harder? What if I didn't give up? What if I didn't tap out? And, and, I, and I do think that that level, and we call it today, you know, this, this idea of grit. Yep. Right. This idea of grit, which is just as necessary today as it was back then, maybe manifests and, and translates a little bit different now. Um, but yeah, I mean, he never complained about it. And I think that's why even when I came out here to New York in 08, I had no friends. I was working seven days a week. I, I, I relived what he was doing, <laughs> even though I swore to myself I never wanted to live like that. And I didn't do that indefinitely, but I did that the first year. And I'm glad that I did because everything was stacked against me. I mean, I had all the competition around me. Um, I'll never forget, even with Pinkberry, I mean, we mentioned this, but they had just raised $27.5 million oh in October of 2007, and I moved in March of 08, right? So I came here just after knowing that they, you know, had, had, had a huge investment, and New York City was the second big market after LA that they were looking to expand into. Um, so it was a David and Goliath movement, you know, no doubt. But that's also why I realized, I'm like, if I'm not willing to fight harder, everything's already stacked against me. I should already lose even before we enter into this. But, you know, you see it in sports all the time, whether it's the Cinderella story in, yeah. in college basketball or, um, you know, it, it's that level of, hey, we have the grit, we have this desire to win, and we're just going to outdo our opponents or our competition or even ourselves, like in terms of what we think we're capable of. And it's amazing when you can set that bar higher, 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 um, and, 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 and then achieve it and start seeing some of the success. And... Yeah, I, I do feel that uh, with a lot of the technology and a lot of the advancement that we have today, while they're tools, sometimes they can be crutches just because a lot of times we're looking for that algorithm or that hack to be like, well, how do I not put in all that work, yeah. right? And, you know, quite frankly, even with 16 Handles, the reason I went through franchising was when I learned that business model. I saw my father who firsthand was a multi-unit franchisee and I got to work with him. I then was on the franchisor side, right, with corporate when we were franchising out the um, Gelato franchises. And I, and I realized that I'm like, I've never had to raise money before, so that's not a skill set I have. I don't want to have to rely on someone to do that for me. And quite frankly, I know how to build and operate the brand. In my mind, I did. And if franchising allows me a vehicle to be able to do that quickly without having to figure out along the way, hey, I need to raise money to do it myself with just cor corporate-owned stores, that was the avenue I decided to take. And so that was kind of my detour as opposed to, hey, I could open up one store, take the profits, eventually open up a second, yep. maybe either take a loan or you know, take some um, you know, outside capital and continue to op operate more. I was more interested in building brand than I was managing locations. And so knowing that about myself, I ended up choosing the route that my strengths, where, where my strengths were. And I think that's also another, another good takeaway because I have a lot of entrepreneurs that are like, well, what's better, corporate owner or franchising? Yeah. And to me, like, that's, that's the wrong question to ask. You know, it's, it's what's better for you? What lines up with what it is that you want to do? What do you have access to? What your you know, strengths and skill sets are? And for me, while I was the only company that I ever worked for, aside from my father, was, was Enterprise Rent-A-Car, a massive company. And they have a great training system. But I was like, I don't want to try to recreate a huge, massive corporate infrastructure that I only had a handful of years experience myself in. And even then, a lot of that was as an independent kind of salesperson, climbing my ranks up. And yes, I had some you know, management experience. But what I loved more than the managing was really the, the, the building, right? And this idea of 
taking something that's an idea and manifesting into something that then has the opportunity to scale and getting it started, that's that sweet spot. And to me, that's why I continue doing that today, whether it's, you know, with 16 handles that, that I've been doing for 14 years or, you know, any of the other companies that I've been involved in have been fortunate to be involved in. Yeah, so I know you you have like such an impressive resume when it comes to uh, not only investing, but also um, advising. And we were talking about it earlier, but do you mind just walking through the audience? Like, how do you choose how to, what brand to stay behind? Because ultimately you're not running that business, but you're spending the most important thing, which is your time advising or investing in them. So like, how do you choose what you're going to stand behind? Yeah, so I've had the pleasure and I'm, I'm very fortunate to be involved with and have been involved with um, many brands all in the consumer space, most tied into food, you know, uh, somehow. And the way that I've been able to do that, um, it actually happened very organically with the first investment and advisory um, opportunity I had was with a young woman who just had this idea. She had this like dream. She's like, I want to create, she essentially wanted to create a 16 handles version of a plant-based 16 handles. And I was like, wait a minute. So you kind of want to build something and you want me to help you to do Fortunately, I was able to kind of like recraft what I thought made more sense specifically because she had a niche product. Um, And the beauty of it is she listened. Right. And I think for one, it's that, you know, when you, when you ask for like, what are the traits that I look for in the entrepreneur? One is I am betting on that entrepreneur. Because I, I, I really only work with startups. And a lot of these startups, the one thing they don't have is access to capital. Of course. Right? And so <laughs> part of the reason why they're building out this advisory team is to help raise more money, you know, as well as, again, like, how do I get experts in the space without paying for their time? Well, this is how you do it, through shares of a company that hopefully they'll help you, you know, turn into a bigger company. And, and I love that because, again, if, for me, it's ideation to creating that, you know, that MVP, that minimum viable product showing that it can scale. And then after that, I mean, especially here in New York City, like there are experts who can fuel that growth financially, operationalize it. Um, but I love that process because it's a discovery. And it's this, to me, it's like this metamorphosis of, you know, this, this little hungry caterpillar that then can become a butterfly and take off. And I use that analogy because that's exactly what it is. A lot of them, they're showing up as these grubs that they don't look very, like it doesn't look promising, you know? And, but there's something there. And to me, it's like, A, do they have that grit? Do they have that true desire? Not just like in their minds, like, I really want this, but like, no matter what, nothing's going to stop me from getting to that end goal. So that's one thing that I look for. Secondly, I think, do they have something that's not so, that's not so one dimensional? And by that, I mean, like, is there room to grow above and beyond that initial idea or that initial product? And I think that that's also important because as I'm sure you and I both learned that first idea is exactly that. It's a seedling. It's the first idea. That's not the final tree. It's not the final plant. It's not the final, you know, jungle. But it's that first seed that's truly necessary. But that seed, then once it gets fostered, you want to plant more and more of those trees. Yeah. And so um, I, I look for that. And then third, as I first started, it's that is, do they have the ability to take in, you know, the sun and all these elements? And to me, that's what it is. I'm not the only advisor. I'm one advisor, right? right? And it takes a lot of external circumstances to be just right to turn that thing into the next thing and so um you know for me like are they receptive to that right or are they going to block me off like to me like i'm joining to be an ally not to be a man i'm not here to be your manager i'm not here to be your boss Um, i'm here to really be your ally right and somebody who's weathered more storms than you have and so like 
at least there's that, right? There's the experience here and there's history. And you can choose to do, you know, what, what you want or not do, you know, with the advice, you know, from that advisory. But I think having a lot of different data points and having a lot of um, uh, experience shares can only help create the best, you know, the, 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 the best outcome for that individual. And I've also, you know, ended advisory terms just because I realized they don't want to listen to me. They want me to tell them what they want to hear. Yeah. Right. And they want to turn away everything else. And, and I'm like, that's not going to work. And so um, there does need to be that symbiotic relationship of, you know, kind of like this give and take. And, and why I like to do that also is like, again, I'm just a student of consumer behavior. Of and I love I love, love, love building and help building brands that people love. You know, that's that's my addiction. And, and that'll never stop. And I've had it a few times now. And again, like it's that that's it's my best. yeah, that's that's the best. Like, I, I never want that to end. And so those are the you know, qualities and traits that I look for and why I continue to put myself out there. I think the last reason why this is important too is I think I have one of those, um, it's almost like if I'm, if, I'm the, if I'm the kid that never got picked on the basketball team or I'm the kid that grew up without a father figure, right? And I came to New York by myself as an orphan, nobody helped me out. One, I didn't even know how to ask for help, right? Yeah. Two, I had no connection or a network. And so I think I over-index in wanting to truly help those who are seeking help because I think about it, I'm like in 08, I wish people would have helped me. I wish there was somebody who would have told me like, hey, you can do this and not that. And hey, I'm here to help, you know? And so... Um, Where they don't want anything, but they just want to see you succeed. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that's another reason why I get so involved in this is that A, I'm able to create and recreate, you know, multiple brands that people will love, but then also just knowing what it was like trying to do this on your own and yeah. not a path that I suggest anybody take. Right. Right. And I think, you know, this is the reoccurring theme as we talk to more and more entrepreneurs is how important mentorship is not only for you, but also for you to give it to, to other people and how much value comes out of it. Not, not only for them, but for yourself, you know, just seeing by you giving value to others, how much that can change yourself and, and help you grow and add more value into your own brand and business idea. I love it. I think, you know, we've heard you touch on a couple of your huge mentors, uh, but do you mind like walking us through how big mentorship has been for you? Obviously you came to New York City, you didn't know anyone, but it sounds like along the way you really had strong role models that help build who you are today. Absolutely. I mean, just within, um, just within the franchise world, I plugged myself in with, uh, you know, various networking groups. Um, you know, shout out to Harold Kessenbaum, who was my first franchise attorney. Um, I franchise was a franchise consulting group that I first reached out to, to help me establish my franchise organization. And it was really through just that first two introductions and then going to events that they would hold. I think that's one of the things that I would, um, really encourage any entrepreneur is yes kind of get out of your own world get out of your own comfort zone and 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 put yourself out there and even if it's not directly with you know what you're doing um you know we had mentioned you know whether it's this nyc watch club or these different organizations or people who are truly passionate and experts about something to be able to feed off of that excitement um is is something that can help more because for some of us we may not know we may not know what it is that we you know but Surrounding yourself with passionate people, you can't go wrong with that. Can't go wrong with that. And passionate people are addicted to other passionate people, yeah. right? It's a never-ending cycle. Yeah. And 
I think um, you know Gary Gary Ocho Grosso, someone else within the New York City franchise system, it's just someone who mentored, right? Didn't ask for anything in return. Could have charged me to be a consultant, but was just kind of rooting for me on the sidelines. Was like, hey kid, like go for it. You know, I'm seeing a lot of guys trying to do this Froyo thing. You know, not sure if it's a if it's a fad right now or whatnot, but you seem to be doing it right and would give me pointers along the way. I'd ask him questions. And so be also surprised that even people who would normally charge for their services, you know, if you can befriend them and if you're genuine, I think that that reciprocity of them, them wanting to see you succeed outweighs, hey, let me try to make a buck off of this person, 100%. right? And it doesn't take long, especially in a market like New York City to see who's transactional and who's relational. Um, sometimes those things, you know, intersect, but, you know, someone who's not in it for your best benefit, you know, and um, you're, you're going to be able to seed through that real quickly. And, but I'll also at the same time say sometimes it's cheaper to pay, yeah. right? Not everyone is out there to be relational or should, or is the best relationship to have. Um, but yeah, I would, I would say there are a lot of groups and organizations out there that can help uh, connect you to, again, whether it's peers within your own network and industry or outside of. To me, I love doing the tangential um, industries as well as outside industries um, it just gives me different perspective and you know sometimes the, the most creative ideas are things that come from something that have nothing to do with your own business and then you take that practical you know uh, nugget and you're just like oh my goodness if I were to do this in my business this way and so I just think a lot of those you know real life case studies are just out there and they're waiting to be experienced and had it's awesome I know that you're a huge runner right what is running ad besides obviously the physical aspect into your life, but why, why do you think that you're addicted to the, the running aspect? What does that give you on a daily basis? So first and foremost, running is something that to me is special and for a couple of reasons. One is I started running after turning 40 during the wow. pandemic. So wow. yeah, I know that my Instagram and maybe some of my handles may indicate otherwise, but I always hated running actually. Um, <laughs> for me, I, I thought it was boring. Yep. Um, I didn't understand kind of the point. It's something that a, I never applied myself to. So I thought like, why, why would I want to do that? Yep. Um, but during the pandemic, it was really my, it was my release. Mm. And every day I woke up and I, at the time we were quarantined with my in-laws out in Long Island. My wife works for NYU Hospital, so she had to come into the city every day. Mm. So here I am with two young kids, a toddler and a newborn, with my in-laws, wow. cooped up in a home, <laughs> doing what everyone else is doing, which is turning on the TV to hear you know, the governor at the time tell us what's going on, and waking up to sad news. And so, meanwhile, you know, uh, being in food service, all my stores were closed down. Of course. A lot of uncertainty. Once again, uncertainty, right? And so to me, I was like, I need something for myself that doesn't require other people or other things. And, and my father-in-law had, a, had a, uh, a treadmill in the basement. So that became my morning routine where I would just sweat it out. And it did a couple things. One, it, every day it allowed me to reset. And so even now, you know, especially on gorgeous days like, like, like today, I wouldn't dare to you know, run indoors on a treadmill. But when I go outside and it's me and my surrounding, it's very much this idea of being able to reset. And, I, and I'm a morning runner. And you know, for those who run in the evenings, more power to you. But for me, I love having that reset at the beginning of my day and just being able to also sweat out anything that was stress or, or whatever else it is and just being able to start refresh. So to me, it's like that reset button every day. Secondly, I'm not competing against anybody. Um, I'm not even necessarily competing against myself, but I am setting new goals and, and, and new achievements uh, that I want to you know, strive for. 
it's a never-ending journey yeah. you know, at the end of the day if you think about it. And there are also different types of runs. So I was um, able to culminate last year with the New York City Marathon. Um, I did two half marathons uh, you know, this year. Summer's not really the season for marathoning, as, as you can see why, but you know, I'll probably do another fall one. But to me, it's this idea that, again, it's not a, hey, I'm just going to do it this one time and check it off. It's this is now a part of my routine. It's a part of my life. So it's a lifestyle sport, so to speak. Yeah. And one that, um, again, even with adverse weather conditions, I can go inside, I can go on a treadmill. There are other ways to be able to do it. For, but for me, the main, the main thing is it's this like mental and physical reset that I can like manifest physically and mentally. And there are a few things that I'm able to do that with. And so to me, that was the biggest unlock and why I'm addicted to it yeah. uh, more than anything else. And I, I heard two things there. One, you weren't afraid to try it after being 40, right? And like, if, this, if there's anything that people can get out of that, it's like, there's never a time where it's too late, right? And I'm sure in the beginning, you're like, this sucks, this is really hard. But now looking back two years later, you've been able to accomplish two half marathons, a marathon, and now you're talking about more. So it's like, it's all about baby steps, right? It's not like you needed to go from zero to 100. You really were strategical with how you got to a half marathon. The other thing I'm hearing is, um, I'm sure not every single day you woke up and you're like, I want to run, right? And that muscle memory of you, what you were talking about before with the grit, right? Not wanting to give up, you know, maybe 90% of the time you didn't want to run, but I'm sure 100% of the time after you finished that run, you thought to yourself, man, I am so glad I did that. So, you know, Hearing that, like, is there anything else that you could think of in terms of advice for anyone watching? Not necessarily about running, but about being consistent outside of work, you know, with your own professional goals. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's exactly that. And it's, it's running for me. Um, and what I would suggest is and advise is that, like, if you don't have that thing in your life, it could be, it could be video games, it could be anything. But what it is for you that allows you to have that... Um, that never, yeah, the reset and the never-ending desire to just keep going, yeah. right? Because, like you said, you don't wake up every morning wanting to do it, right. um, but you know every morning that it is it, that is the goal. Yeah. And I think that that's the most important thing is every day waking up at least knowing do I have that goal? And and if the answer is I'm not sure I don't or I don't, then do everything you can to search and find. And 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 it's not too late, right? I found this after turning 40, which also means that I was already 12 years into my business, wow. right? How great would it have been for me? Yeah. You know, if I had this habit, you know, 12 yeah. years ago, I just think about it. I'm like, how much further could I have gone with my business? I don't think of it that way, but I'm just saying metaphorically that it's that important and it's not too late to figure out what that is. And, you know, I feel like with the advancements that we have now, there can be 60, 70 year old entrepreneurs that can sure. change the world, you know? And I think it's more of a mindset than it is anything else. What I've been able to achieve, in, even in those you know, two years that I've been running, just thinking like I've done like you know, sprint triathlons and things of like that in the past, completely out of the water. Like I'm way more fit and physically capable of running faster and further than I've ever been before, even in my 20s. And that, again, I think comes from a combination of that sheer desire to stay consistent to the goal but then also from wisdom, right? Like you said, I'm not gonna try to run, you know, and do a, you know, try to do a speed run on my, on my first, you're right, and that, that's just not smart. And I think, for me, it probably makes sense that, and it's safer that I'm starting this after 40 as opposed to at 20 when I was all about, I'm in, I'm in the, I'm, yeah, exactly, I can just do all things. 
Um, but uh, I, I do think that it's important to remain consistent. And it's those consistent behaviors that will give you the result that I think you're looking for, for most people. Um, it, it certainly has been for me. It's awesome. One thing that really stands out um, is how powerful your own personal brand is. Obviously, you've created 16 handles, sh such a strong value there, but when I see how, what you've done for yourself, right? And a lot of entrepreneurs lack at that because they're so dedicated to their business. And, you know, you've done it successfully through LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok. You know, why did you do that? And then like, again, I'm sure it's very similar to running. It's all about consistency versus going all in. But, you know, what kind of benefit has that given you in terms of brands and advising and investing? It's It's been... It's like Legos, you know, it's just been one building block on top of the other. That's how I view a lot of the, uh, the different social channels. Um, certain ones are easier for me, quite frankly, to do because I lean, like I, I love LinkedIn just because that's my, that's my favorite platform. Um, to me, it's, it, it's, it's got everything I like in terms of being able to connect with the people I want to connect with, as well as allowing people to have access to me. Um, doing it in a way where there's professionalism, but there's also a personal you know, approach. I, I like everything about that. Um, seems to me at least the, the purest form today you know, for myself. But I think across all platforms, people are looking to, they're on these platforms for a reason. You know, they're looking to connect. Yep. And people want to connect with someone who wants to be connected to. Right. Um, look, I, I'm just as busy as the next guy. You know, I'm a father of two. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I advise and invest. I mean, but there are plenty of people who do a lot more than what I do. And rather than focusing on, well, I don't have the bandwidth to, to me, I make it a priority. I make it a priority. So one of the things I do, for instance, is I make it a goal to post two LinkedIn posts a week. And if I don't do it, then I calendar into my into my weekly. I, I got to a point I don't need to calendar it and it became muscle memory. Right. I don't need to wake up and have it in my calendar. I'm going to go running. I know I'm going to do it. And so from that standpoint, until something becomes muscle memory, I would I would first advise get it into your calendar. If you're like me and you follow your calendar. Um, but what that ultimately does is when people see the consistent output of what it is you're putting out there, naturally they're going to look to you. And if they're following you, they're going to see you as, you know, some sort of a thought leader or a subject matter expert in a space that clearly you're passionate about because you keep posting about certain themes over and over again. And so for me, when I'm talking about business, entrepreneurship, you know, food, um, a lot of the deal flow that I get in terms of, you know, potential investments and other companies that are looking for advisors either are coming from those companies directly who are searching for me on these platforms or a lot of times it's actually from friends or people in my network that are like, hey, so-and-so came to me or I heard this or my cousin said that, you know, someone's working on this. Would you want to take a look at this? And I mean, there are professional companies and VCs and investors out there that would love to have all that type of inflow. Of and for me, it's been through this organic channel of what I'm putting out, kind of the social universe is giving me back, right? And it's, it's that same way. It's like, hey, I can say, man, I really want to run this, you know, hour and a half, half marathon. I want it so badly. I just don't want to do the running and the practice part. I mean, good luck, good luck. There's no magic pill that I've come across. If there is, you know, someone please share it with me. Um, but. It's that. And so to me, I look at that just like I do with running or anything else is got to put the work into it. And ultimately, I think a lot of us have this desire to leave a legacy or want to be um, personified out there as, as something or as a someone. But again, if we're not willing to put the work into saying, well, what kind of person is that? What kind of business leader is that? What kind of friend is that? What kind of investor is that? How is somebody who doesn't know you supposed to know? Yeah. 
And looking at it through that lens, it's like, oh yeah, like they wouldn't. So then do you only want to be connected to your first degree network and think that you're going to exceed and excel beyond that? I mean, for me, that wasn't enough. And, you know, it's less for me about making new friends today. I don't need new, really close friends. You know, if I meet some, great. You know, but I'm in my 40s now. I have my close friends. But to me, this idea of peers and network and, and people who also, like, want to connect with me for, again, something that I can offer them, like, that I, I want to be infinite. Like, I, I don't want that then. I don't want that pipeline to dry up. And so that's the reason I put myself out there. Um, and ultimately, all that manifests to then, you know, if someone's like, hey, someone's looking for a franchise, then, it, you know, it could come back to you of in that course. way, too. And so it, it's just really... You put yourself out there if you want something in, you know, if you want something in return. And while that sounds transactional, it kind of is, you know, because, um, but it's an organic transaction as opposed to like this forced or... You spending or, or, money marketing or advertising. Right. And, and I think ultimately, actually, I take that back. I scratch that. It's not a transaction. It's building brand. Yeah. Right. Building brand is not a transaction. So it doesn't need to be a transaction. It becomes more organic. And I really wanted to focus on that piece where... Um, a lot of what comes to me is not because I have some fancy website. It's like, hey, for those who are looking for, a, you know, and again, there's no wrong or right way to do it. It's do it the way that's most comfortable for you. That goes back to the whole corporate store versus franchise. Like, do what you want to lean into, right? What seems... Yeah. The You'll be excited about getting up every single exactly. day over and over and doing it. You know, one thing that I think it's safe to say is that you are an amazing father. You're a super dedicated husband to your wife and your kids. I have a uh, daughter who's going to be turning two this year. I know how important that is for my entrepreneurship journey. How has that played a role in not only how you look at life, but also how you value your time working on, I'm sure 10 years ago, like we were talking, every day, all day business, right? Now, I'm sure you work a lot smarter than harder. So how, you know, how has that played a role now being a father? How old are your kids? Uh, my daughter's five and my son's two and a half. So how's that played a role in like, you know, where your future will bring you? Yeah, I'll say that that's probably been the biggest transformation for me um, is going from entrepreneur to, to husband. Yeah. But then even, you know, the, the biggest one has been from, you know, husband and entrepreneur to now husband, entrepreneur and father of two. And the bandwidth scenario, right? If you didn't think you had enough time then, well, again, it's one of those things where you make time, yep. right? And you reprioritize. And I think that's the beauty of, you know, having a family for me is, I mean, not just the fact that I get to reprioritize, but the fact that something else becomes now the priority or yep. priorities and still staying committed to my own personal desires and goals. So it's not in replacement of, but it's in addition to. And I think that's the key for me is that I'm able to look at, my day, my calendar, my time, and, uh, and respect it in a way that it didn't before, right? Totally. Because again, when I'm in my 20s and I'm in my 30s and it's just about me and I'm physically and mentally capable of doing it for, you know, going down this one lane to just build, 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 hey, I miss those days. Those days were great, I right? It was, it, was, it was so fun, you know, in, in and of itself. But in terms of reward, I mean, this is way more rewarding uh, because it's not just about what I do, right? But it, it does become important to and even more critical to understand that being able to say no to things totally, as opposed to, yes, I can do it. No problem. I'll just work hard. I'll just stay up later. Like it's, Hey, you're going to have to do those things anyway. Yeah. Right. So that in itself doesn't make you more productive, yeah, yeah. but it's about being able to also say, Hey, no to this and being able to look, I think more long-term. I think that's the, that's the difference is, 
you know, with my kids, like this is an 18 year minimum investment, right? At least from a legal standpoint, I'm legally responsible, you know, to, to do that. And so I don't think of it as, okay, well, what's the hack right now where I can just put in a little bit and then walk away from it. But it's how do I foster this so that way I can have the most successful run over this, you know, over this uh, horizon. And, you know, I've, I've turned down some opportunities as a result of that. Um, you know, I'm not, and I still make mistakes. You know, I've been on family vacations where I'm taking paid calls because I didn't think to, you know, prioritize and block, unblock that off. Because I was like, yeah, but I'm getting paid this. And technically, I just need to carve out an hour during it. But to me, it's more of those little things and chasing those few dollars at that moment compounded. Yeah. I don't want them to look back and be like, yeah, I remember dad used to take us to Aruba and the Bahamas, but then he'd always have to leave to do these calls. I, I don't want it the butt. Yeah. I want it to be like, we had a great time. You know, we got to spend time as a family and in doing so, again, the, the way that you approach each day and each project and each opportunity just becomes a little bit more macro as opposed to micro. And I think even as business owners and entrepreneurs, like that's what we seek is yeah. how do we start working on our business and businesses as opposed to working in it? Because if you're working in it, you can only work on one. Right. But, you know, to a certain degree, managing a family is another business in and of itself. And that's one that's 24 seven. And when someone's sick, you know, it's just ongoing. And so um, I do think that uh, it's helped me become a a better overall leader. Also, just being more empathetic to my team, you know, my employees, to my franchisees, to just all people around me, to my vendors. Right. When it's just you and you're healthy and and then everyone else is a letdown. So why can't everyone just be more like me and just go, go, go. But. You know, I think there's more to life than just that. And again, in the long game, I just think, you know, being more understanding, empathetic and um, will just garner you a lot better like results. The type of people that are going to want to be around you are also ones who are looking at it as more of a long term yeah. relationship as well. And so I think all those benefits have come with uh, with the family life. It's amazing. Super powerful. Do you have any questions for me? My question for you, yes, would be. With junk luggers, I think you know everybody knows what it is and what the, what the service is. Have you thought about what tangential or other businesses and opportunities could come as a result of having this base of franchisees, customers? Again, something that I I, I think yeah. about all the time with my business, and so would like to ask you that. Yeah, I think you know we started Remix Market a couple years ago. To me, that's something I'm super passionate about because junk luggers was always for. Uh, more affluent individuals. Like if you were to think, why not put the items on the curb or sell it on Craigslist? My recommendation is put the items on the curb or sell it on Craigslist. It was always about people who are passionate about giving back to the community, being able to donate, not just give your items to a a garbage removal company and have them just destroyed in the compactor. Um, And when we started Remix Market, that to me was like really giving back to the community. It was making items that are you know, high-end furniture that are coming out of these nice apartments, make them available to the general public. Um, and even now, when I think about what's next, because to me, Remix is not only a passion project, but it's now a completely separate business venture that I knew nothing about retail uh, before three years ago. You know, I, I'm, I'm like you, I'm always thinking about what's next, what part of this industry hasn't been tapped yet. Um, and I've gotten really passionate over the last couple years about this idea of a mini Murph. So uh, basically, there's transfer stations all around the country. These transfer stations, their one specific goal is to take all the items from the carting and garbage removal companies and compact it as tight as possible and then transport those items to a landfill. 
but we all know that most of those items that are going there aren't actually garbage. Um, so in the last, let's say, decade, they've come up with this piece of machinery that requires 15,000 square feet um, that will basically, it's a conveyor belt and it uses vibration technology. And based upon how those items are vibrating, it then can uh, sort it into the original form, whether it's plastic, uh, paper, cardboard, um, whatever that, uh, you know, that original material is, and then it can then uh, bail it together and you could sell as a commodity. So I think when, when I think about that, I think we could probably divert 90% of all the items going to a landfill into you recycling and reusing it again. Um, and that's just something, you know, that I, I, I'm super passionate about. I know how much work it's obviously going to be and how much money it's going to cost. Um, but to me, just like you, I hear so much about the benefits of being a newbie and leaning into experts in that industry. And to me, that's what I love. You know, when I get to the point in junk luggers where I have so many smart individuals around me running the day to day, then I think to myself, what's next? And to me, I get excited thinking about becoming a beginner in a whole new industry. Amazing. Yeah. Um, if you were to have a billboard anywhere in around the world, what would it say? Uh, where would it be and why? So if I could have a billboard anywhere in the world, I have had a billboard in Times Square okay. for 16 handles once. Um, I would choose to have it there again. However, it wouldn't be for 16 handles. Um, it would be for the personal brand and it would be, do you have, the, you know, do you have something that you're passionate about, but you don't know how to turn it into a business? Um, reach out to Solomon. And uh, yeah, it would be, it would be to connect with as many people as I can. So I, I can't think of another place where more people travel and walk by than, uh, than in Times Square. And, and preferably it'd be the only billboard at least for 30 seconds. So turn all the other <laughs> we'll ones block, off. Yeah, we'll yeah. block out the other ones. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way and, and you know, any sort of uh, social media handles you're using? Best way to reach out to me, um, as I mentioned, uh, LinkedIn is my preferred um, social channel, Solomon Choi, C-H-O-I, Solomon all O's. Um, but you can also DM me on, um, on Instagram, um, at Solomon Choi, just my name. Um, those would probably be the, the two easiest ways to get a hold of me. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for roasting on top of our roof. Um, you know, shout out to Solomon for coming through. You, by hands down, have been one of the most pleasant experiences. You know, when I reach out to you, we knew each other kind of through EO, but we never really had a one-on-one -on -one conversation. You were so open and so... Uh, willing to jump onto the podcast. And to me, it just speaks really highly of who you are as a person and how much you're still willing to learn and, and share your experience with everyone. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, shout out to the Lug Life family. This is, this wraps up episode 18 and uh, like comment, subscribe. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for coming to Queens and, and making this happen today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. Yep. Woo. I had my issues throughout life, so we have this quote that I repeat every single day. Episode, episode, episode. My last question is: If you put a billboard anywhere in New York City, what would it say?